I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey everyone, this is Motherboard staff writer Jason Kebler, and this is a brand new podcast called Hashtag F Society, where we're going to talk about the real-life parallels uh, to hacking in the show Mr. Robot. Um, if you're listening to this now, you might notice that we are a couple weeks late on starting this, and the reason why is I just took a trip to South America and uh, got my laptop stolen while I was there. So I apologize for being late. Um, I just wanted to uh, put this note up top um, and say that from now on, we will be releasing every week uh, after the show comes out on Wednesdays. Probably we'll have it up Thursday or Friday. Um, this first episode only covers the first episode of the second season, and we will be having more episodes. Uh, we'll try to catch up maybe by uh, next week's show. So uh, check this space over the next few days for new episodes, and you can find uh, new episodes of the show on hashtag F Society. So search it in on iTunes and search it on your favorite podcast app. We'll be there. Um, this first week, we're also releasing it on our normal radio motherboard feed. All right, thank you so much, and here's the show. Hello, and welcome to a brand new podcast being brought to you by Radio Motherboard. This is Hashtag F Society, an IRLIRC channel. Lorenzo, what does that mean? Um, it's a good question. I think it just means that we didn't, we couldn't come up with a better name. No, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> no, it's, it definitely doesn't mean that. I think this this came after hours of brainstorming, and uh, we thought it was uh, smart because, uh, you know, hackers like to hang out in IRC channels, and IRC channels are usually well always start with an hashtag. So. Wait, why are we why are we talking about hacking? We haven't even introduced ourselves right. or the show yet. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. So, first of all, I'm Lorenzo Franceschi Bicchirai. I'm a staff writer at Motherboard where I write about hacking, cybersecurity, privacy and all this fun stuff. Yes, and I'm Jason Kebler. Um, I'm the host of Radio Motherboard. Um, welcome to a new uh, quick series of podcasts that we're going to be doing for Mr. Robot season 2. Uh, we're going to be recapping and discussing every episode this season. Um, and we're going to do it. Um, we're going to assume that you are a Mr. Robot super fan. And every episode will have both spoilers. And we're also going to try to talk about the real life analogs to hacks that happen in Mr. Robot. Because if you watch season one, and I assume that you have, uh, you'll notice that there are a lot of hacks in it that were based on real-life hacks, and there's a lot of real-life cybersecurity stuff in there. Um, I talked to Cora Adana, who is um, a writer for Mr. Robot, and he does all their technical stuff and makes sure that all the hacking is accurate. And he told me that basically they spend hours and hours just making sure that all the screens you see on there, all like the shells and terminals are all real hacks. Um, and that's why we have Lorenzo here to talk about, uh, you know, where we see these hacks turn up in the real world. So, uh, Lorenzo, in this first episode, I guess should we should we talk about what happens in the first episode of season two? Yes, I think we can quickly recap. And just as a way of, um, we uh, basically, Mr. Robot uh, decided to do something really weird and interesting. They tweeted out the whole first episode on Sunday evening, and they left it up for like a couple of hours on their Twitter account. Uh, which means that a lot of people saw it that way, but also a lot of other people downloaded it and put it out for the the world to see, which I think was part of their plan. I mean, you know, especially when you're doing Mr. Robot, you know that someone is going to like 
illegally pirate, pirate your episodes, especially if you put them on Twitter. Yeah, and right now, um, just for research purposes, on a popular uh, torrent site, there are over 10,000 seeds for the first uh, episode of season two. So this is getting out there. It's been downloaded 123,000 times. So uh, people are really excited to see this show. And uh, how did you originally get into Mr. Robot? Because I remember I was listening to it, or I was, you know, I was pitched the show by a press person for USA. And I heard, you know, a hacking show, it's going to be realistic. And I've heard that before and my eyes sort of uh, glazed over because I didn't really believe them. I didn't think that, you know, I didn't think anyone would dare to make a realistic and good hacking show. Um, and then a few weeks in, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll have a, a watch. And it was awesome. Like, it's, it, they really did it. So how did you get into it? Yeah, I think my, my story is similar. I think that I don't remember the first time I heard about it, but I think I had the same reaction. I was like, okay, it, this is a hacking show. Uh, at the time for me, it sounded like, oh, this is CSI Cyber, but like with a different name. No, thank you. Like, I'd rather watch reruns of Battlestar Galactica. And, um, but then like, you know, in the following weeks and months, everyone started talking about it, especially like hackers or people or sec people that work in cybersecurity that, that I trust. And, and, and also, uh, you know, if you, if you know anything about, um, hacking and cybersecurity, they, the, the people in this community really like to be critical. And I mean, you know, their job is to be critical and look at stuff with a skeptical, critical eye. So the fact that they, that a lot of people in this community like this show, um, uh, told me that this was a good show because I was like, okay, you know, these people are are not supposed to like this. You know, when CSI Cyber came out, everyone made fun of it. It was terrible, you know, it was terrible. Everyone like started like criticizing and making jokes. It became like a, you know, a joke. Uh, whereas Mr. Robot, even though it's not like, you know, not everyone in the community likes it, I, I think it's fair to say that a large majority of hackers and people in security uh, appreciate the show and at least admit that, as you said, it's realistic and it's well done. Right. So in season one, we saw a lot of like social engineering type hacking. Um, we saw some physical access infrastructure type hacking when he breaks into um, into the data the center. Data yeah. center, yeah. Um, and then the sh the season ends with this massive hack of E Corp, um, in which they basically encrypt everyone's files. So. Um, all the account information is encrypted, and that's where we start season two off at. Absolutely unfair, madam. Absolutely unfair. We were done with our payments. Ma'am, we are doing our best here. At this moment, we cannot verify that you've paid all your payments. Absolutely ridiculous. I have. I have all my bills right here. I was never late on one, and I also have copies of the People checks that People have been I forging sent. paper records. We haven't set up a system to verify these sorts of claims. It took me three weeks to get this appointment, madam. Now you're telling me you can't help me? What kind of business is this? Elliot has... Elliot's basically... Uh, like, Mr. Robot has come back. He's kind of... Um, He's committed a huge crime. He's a little worried about like what he's done. I feel I feel like he's feeling some regret early in in this episode. Like he's gone to his mom's house. He's journaling. He's not really like hacking at all. Um, and then suddenly, like Mr. Robot is back, and he's like, you know, you have to get back in the game. Um, and he's like, no, no, I don't want to do that. And you know, that's kind of where we're left off. He's like not a part of F society at at this moment. There is more work to be done. Our revolution needs a leader. And what are we doing instead? Journaling. Che Guevara is throwing up in his grave right now. Yeah, it's. I think it's... Um, I don't know if he has regret, but he's definitely lost... I think it's fair to say that he's lost his mind even more than before. Like, we don't know what happened to the um, former E-Corp guy. Uh, we don't know if, like... Elliot killed him. We don't know if he just like fled after the big hack. Uh, we don't even know. Like I'm, I'm not even sure if like what we see as Elliot's mom's apartment is really his mom's apartment. Is that a, is that really his mom's apartment or is it a, an asylum? And you know, his whole story of like I wake up, I journal, and then I have lunch with this guy, I have dinner with this guy. Is that reality or is this like his way? of like coping with the fact that he's, 
in some sort of facility locked up. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a recurring theme on this show. Is you know everything's sort of like a druggy or hallucinatory haze, and it's hard to know what's real and what's not. Obviously, and yeah, I agree. It, it's uh, I'm not exactly sure what where where we are as far as Elliot goes um, in this episode. It's really hard to tell. Um, you know, Mr. Robot like shoots him in the head a few times. Then he meets with his old boss from E Corp, and uh, you know. There's the show is suggesting that maybe he killed him, kills him. Um, I don't know. Do you think that that he did? I think there's. I think the show is clearly clearly wants us to believe that he might have killed him, which is probably a sign that he didn't. But you know, the first episode definitely hints at that. There's a scene, that scene where Elliot um, goes over to the popcorn machine in the Coney Island um, video game store, or, and you know, and, and and the episode reminds us that there was a gun hidden there at the beginning. So I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it would make sense. Like, why would you kill him? I guess if I was Elliot, I would kill him because I don't trust him, right? Like, he wasn't part of F-Society. He was part of Evil Corp. He's clearly a deranged human being. So I just, you know, I just pulled off the biggest hack in history, and I'm a criminal, and I don't want to, like, you know, get caught. And that guy is probably a liability. Right, right. I feel, I, I think that it's deception. I don't think that Elliot killed him. Um, I'm not sure what happened, but I feel like it's still too early in the series to make Elliot a murderer. Um, that's not really, he's like an anti-hero of sorts and he commits a lot of crimes, but we haven't seen him get violent yet except for against himself. And obviously he has sort of lost his mind here, but I don't think, I I talked to uh, the series creator, Sam Ishmael, and they have been super tight-lipped about what's going to happen in season two. But one thing that they have been very open about is that season two is going to deal a lot with the encryption debate, and uh, it's going to have an FBI element of it, and the FBI is going to be pursuing this hack, which we do see in that meeting um, between Elliot and his old boss. But I feel like if you just throw murder on top of it, that it kind of undermines the hack. Um, that's just my sense. Like, I think that they want to get into, like, the ins and outs of investigating a hack. And, like, if Elliot has to start hiding bodies, like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a road that they want to go down yet. But, I, I mean, I could be totally wrong. Yeah, you're probably right. Maybe I'm just, like, going, you know, thinking about the worst-case scenario here. I guess my, you know, what I, what I kept thinking while watching this episode was... How are they going to surprise us this season? Because, you know, the first season was a huge surprise since the beginning, not just because the TV show was daring in its, like, the fact that there was it was technical, technically correct, but, you know, the whole show is, like, really surprising and you, you, can't, you don't really expect anything that happens in it. And, but at the same time, you know, at the end of the show basically gives away a lot. You know, we, we find out that Elliot actually is crazier than we think and is having hallucinations and Mr. Robot is actually dead and doesn't exist. We also, you know, at the end, his crazy plan works out and goes through. So, you know, I guess the big question here in this season two is like, what's the big, you know, what's the big storyline here? You know, the hack happened. We know Mr. Robot doesn't exist. I'm just like, uh, you know, if I was a writer for the show, I'd be a little worried about how to keep up with the expectations. Yeah, which uh, that's probably a good uh, segue here. We actually are going to talk to Lucy Teitler, who is a former motherboard writer uh, who now writes for Mr. Robot. She has a super interesting story. So um, let's chat with her about what it's like to write on the show. So we have Lucy Teitler, Alex Pasternak, and Lorenzo. Uh, I never say your last name ever because I will never pronounce it right. And I'm Jason Kevlar. Uh, Lucy is a former motherboard freelancer who is now a staff writer for Mr. Robot. So um, can you tell us how you, how in the world did you end up being a journalist and suddenly getting a job on the coolest TV show around? Well, I was working, I was freelancing for motherboard, writing about hacking and security stuff. And along the way I had gotten like built a relationship with a guy who was an information security expert. And, um, and I was, and and I saw, I started seeing the posters for Mr. Robot and I was like, 
But I mean, it was a really cool advertising campaign. This was for the first season. And so it was like, who owns your information? And like basically the kind of questions that I was trying to figure out in the stories I was writing for Motherboard. And so I, um, but I kind of assumed, I think the way a lot of people did before the show came out, that it would be a like a kind of polished TVification of these ideas. And then um, like the show premiered and moments after it was first premiered, I got a message on Twitter from this guy who was a source of mine who was like, you have to check out Mr. Robot. Like it's legitimately dope or, or something like that. And, um, and so I did, and I was like, you know, I agree. This is a, like a really good show. And, um, and my first instinct, I'm not sure I ever told Sam this, but my first instinct was like, damn, like I should have created this show. <laughs> like, I think, I think a lot of people felt that way. And then, um, but then the, the guy I was chatting with on Twitter, he was like, you should write for that show. And, um, and I think, and it's really funny to think about like the question of how my background writing about hacking related to me getting the job. Cause I actually think the most crucial interaction with it in a way was this moment where, because this, this guy, he was just like, you should get that job, like get it. And there was that kind of hack hacking mentality of just like, make it happen. Like crack that system to get that job. And so I was like, yeah, he's right, man. Like, I know about this. I should, I should get this job. And, um, and like, to be fair, I had been working in television. Like I was a, a journalist and also working in television. So I had written a pilot and, um, and I had like experience in that. And so, but the first move I made to try and get a job on the show was tweeting at Sam. Um, and I was like, Hey, I'm a journalist. I have some ideas, like great job with the show. Maybe we could meet. And he, he tweeted back like, thanks a lot. And, and so, and I had an immediate feeling of like, this is possible. This person has responded to me in some way. Yeah. You like acknowledge your existence. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so then like inspired by this hacking mentality of like, you know, like hip hop music playing in my head. And I'm just like, I can crack this system. I, um, I just like Googled everyone who worked on the show and found that a friend of mine worked for a company that one of the producers worked for. And so then I contacted him that way. And so I kind of like, I contacted Sam on like as a random person on Twitter and then Chad Hamilton, the other executive producer, you know, like a more um, insider way. And then I arranged to have a meeting with them, which had its own kind of like little obstacles um, where they almost had to cancel because they're so busy. And then I like um, spoke to the assistant and, and got in. And, any, and then we had a great meeting. Um, and I said, you know, like, I know about this. And I, I was still kind of on this confident hacking like mentality where I was just like, I just want to like crack like find a way to get this job. And so I was like, I know about this. I love your show, blah, blah, blah. And then I didn't hear back from them for two months. And I was, or I, I had a back and forth with Chad, but I didn't get the job for two months later. I was like ordering some not that promising pizza bites in, <laughs> in a like smoothie place. And I got a call from an unknown number and it was Chad and I like never got my pizza bites. I just ran home. I think that's worth it. That's like a good trade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's fitting that it'd come from an unknown number. I think so. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that one of the questions that people have asked me is like how, how much of the work that I did for Motherboard directly influenced the work that I was doing on Mr. Robot. I think the, the biggest hurdle to being able to write the show is in like a, an understanding of like a fluency in the world that it traffics in. So it's like, I don't normally during the day talk about the details of things that I reported on, but just like an understanding that people, that, that the same people who are information security experts are also hackers and, and like a basic fluency in the world is like totally important to working on the show. Right. You can like flip that switch on if needed. Information security and privacy and like the Edward Snowden 
controversy was the first time that that was like really major in the news. But I think, but it's a, it's like this underbelly that people are aware of, but don't know about. And I think that the show confidently seems to know about it. And I, I think that the show doesn't try to explain it in a pedantic way, but it just like exists in a world like ours, where a lot of things are going on online all the time that other people don't understand. Right. And this is that's what we're kind of talking about in this podcast and will be in future ones. It's kind of like every hack that's in Mr. Robot has an analog to the real world. And reporting on this stuff, it's, you know, you see it and it's like, oh, yeah, like, of course they'd have ransomware. Like, that makes so much sense. And I mean, I, Lorenzo can speak to this more, but like, you know, he was watching and he noticed that the jester is in the first episode and like he's reported on the jester before. And that's, it's just kind of like, it just, it's, it could be, it could be in the real world. I mean, it, it really is like a lot of this stuff. I mean, obviously it's a little bit more like um, hazy, like drug hazy and like schizophrenic hazy than um, a lot of shows, I guess. And that, that's a lot, a lot of its appeal too. But I think that, you know, the, the, science for the hacking the tech is all very real and that's obviously like to your credit and you know what the whole point of the show was uh, from the get-go I guess yeah well I mean it's it's a really strong choice that that Sam made and that we've all stuck to and that like and so I I was lucky to have that or not lucky but I had that background and so that was something that I was able to do but it is amazing when you think about it how the like the um, orthodoxy is like a show about doctors doesn't have to be exactly how a hospital works because everyone except for the doctors will buy it and Mr. Robot has reversed that and made it so that what you see actually is authentic to people who know and then everyone else thinks so too and like once you see that done, it's kind of like obvious. I mean, you know, I think I, it's obviously better. And I think that um, that it builds a lot of trust for the viewership in terms of what they like expect from the show. Right, right. Um, I'll pass it off to Alex or Lorenzo in a second, but I wanted to ask you at least one more question um, before I do. Um, I'm curious. How do you try to get inside the head of the characters that you write? Um, I know that um, in TV writing often and movie writing as well, often there are like character traits that are really and like histories that are really well formed that the audience will never see. So you kind of have to know like how how your character will react to basically like any sort of situation. So I'm curious, like what you can tell us, like, does Elliot have a favorite food or color or like what were his favorite video games uh, to play growing up? Um, do you guys like talk about that sort of thing in the writer's room? And is it like pretty well known, like the histories of these characters that happens off screen? There are some things that we talk about with a lot of specificity and then others that we don't. I think I feel like the ways in which I feel more that I feel most intimately connected with the characters in some way, like in terms of information that's off camera, is all of the discussions we have about things that they might do and then we don't end up pursuing it. So you have this sense of like this backlog of how they would act in all of these situations because these are situations that we discuss. Um, and so you, you sort of feel like you've been through this imaginary alternate like future with all of them. I think... For me, like those kinds of lo like logistics about like what kind of favorite food someone is is not. I don't know. I mean, I guess we don't actually. That was a bad example. I'll say, but I guess I was talking more about like what you were saying, like alternate storylines that get trashed or like are not possible anymore because you know you've moved past them um, for whatever reason. And we talk a lot about like where where the characters have have come from and where and where they are now and what they might do. I have a question quickly for Lucy. Um, you're working on a new play, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. How's that going? Um, it's going really well. Thank you for asking. Um, yeah, it's the first, the first preview is on Monday. Yeah, it's a... I, I was thinking about it, like, 
in case it came up on this podcast, because on the face of it, it's so different from Mr. Robot. It's a comedy about relationships, essentially. But I was thinking about how there are similarities because my my play is also really about systems. And what's the play? What, oh, what okay. You, it's called, yeah, it's called Engagements, and it's going up at Second Stage Uptown. Previews start on July 18th, and then it opens on August 4th. And um, it's about, it takes place at a bunch of engagement parties, and it's about a kind of like emotional Rube Goldberg machine that happens when, uh, like, at, like getting struck off at the beginning of the play and then has repercussions through all of these relationships. And um, I describe it in a lot of different ways, depending on, on who's asking. I haven't quite landed on a succinct description of it, but I was thinking about it that way because I was thinking about how, like Mr. Robot, it is about interconnectivity and how I think that's such a major theme these days, just in, like, in terms of story or in terms of anything. Like one thing happens over here and then there are immediate consequences that we see online. And that's just how information travels now. And so I feel like it's kind of become a, like a major mode of like contemporary culture. Does that change the way you think about telling stories and, and about the way you, you write, I guess, this, this consideration of interconnectivity, technology? I mean, I'm sure that technology and the like osmosis of interconnectivity has changed the way I write and think in so many ways I'm not even aware of. And then, so like full stop, but in addition to that, I do think that I'm more interested in ideas of connectivity than, I mean, than I probably was before the internet when I was like nine, <laughs> before I was online when I was like nine. But um, so, yeah, I think unconsciously, 100% and consciously also, yes. What's an example of that kind of interconnectivity in terms of storytelling that that's so exciting i mean i, I i've seen a, i've seen an earlier version of your show and obviously the characters are wrapped up in a world that is you know on facebook and full of alerts about what other people are doing and the weddings that they're going to and that's sort of an undercurrent um and i see that also in mr robot but i wonder how that changes the way that stories might be told um, just in terms of thinking about how you fit technology into that. Um, or mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. given your own experience, like weird experiences with technology. I could be specific about Mr. Robot. One of the things that Mr. Robot does so well is you have this e-corp world that feels so far away from the world of like each of the other characters, Darlene, Elliot, Angela, and then you see that not only are they not far away because these systems have connected them, but by second season, they're all, they're intricately connected and it doesn't feel contrived because we know intuitively that, that that is the world that we live in. I always think about that uh, Seinfeld episode where they are trying to meet up at the movies and none of them have cell phones. So they basically like, they made a whole episode about the fact that they can't find each other at, at a um, movie theater. And I just, think you know that that episode can't be written today like it can't be written today in a credible way at all and i mean that's just like a very obvious like kind of easy one but there's like a lot of other ways that you know technology now has to be included in television and movies yeah and i think that that has such broader implications if you think about like the idea of people trying to meet up and missing each other like a missed connection which is just a kind of a cornerstone of stories up until the internet up until cell phones like yes Seinfeld but also like Romeo and Juliet and then you say okay we can still we could still show this on a television show but we would all know that it's contrived like we would all know that this is fake and I think that feeling of like having to address technology in an intelligent way Otherwise, everyone in the audience will know it's not true, is like the world that we're in now. Or it's like, unless you're addressing technology in a sophisticated way in some fashion, whether it's directly like Mr. Robot or 
more loosely, like I, I guess, in, for instance, my play, you're asking the audience to suspend disbelief because it's not the world that we live in. Do you think that Mr. Robot could change, you know, how future hacking movies and television shows are portrayed? Like from now on, you know, flying numbers just aren't going to fly. Like, you know, these crazy hacking scenes we've seen in tons of other movies before. That would be great. <laughs> I mean, that would be great to eliminate the flying number. Um, I mean, I think that Mr. Robot has made an impact on the way that hacking is portrayed, definitely. You know, will it be the end of of um, of, of other kinds of portrayals? You know, I, 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 your guess is as good as mine. I would suspect not. Not at first, you know, but... But yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious about something. Um, I, you know, I write about um, hacking all the time. And I wonder how much are you guys, uh, the writers and people working on the show, paranoid about your own, uh, like, safety online? Especially, you know, with the fact that um, you guys have su- such a huge audience in the hacking world and real hackers are watching your show. You know, are That's you guys worried question. about some of them, like targeting you not not maybe not because they're pissed but just for the lulls like they say i think that we're all surprised that i mean i think it's like the more you know about hacking in general the more you're surprised that you haven't been hacked yeah um and i think that we're all surprised that that nothing like that has happened with the show, I mean, I don't think it would be that hard to hack the individual email of someone on the show. And and I, I just can't believe that that's impossible. Kor Adana, who's one of the writers as well as the our like tech guru, thinks that that we may have protection, which I love the idea. Um, like you have a hacking bodyguard to keep. Yeah, yeah, like like yeah, like somewhere on the internet there hackers protecting us from other other hackers which is definitely like not only an appealing thought but possible i i i think we we think about it and talk about it all the time i think for me ironically first working writing about hacking for motherboard and then working on mr robot has actually made me personally less worried about it i think because it's totally crystallized for me the fact that there's absolutely nothing you can really do about it that if someone that with a will to be hacked you sort of will be and that the only thing you can do is just hope that that you won't won't be (laughs) and (laughs) and that like that vulnerability that vulnerability is like a major theme of the show also I think the the sense, you know, like the idea of finding someone's vulnerability and exploiting it as the the basic definition of hacking, and then that kind of like translating into the emotional reality of the show is, I'd say, like basically, is the subject matter, broadly speaking, of Mr. Robot. Um, and I think that that the the idea of like the power that the internet gives to Elliot and to everyone is also like the flip side of it is this vulnerability that like you are putting your information out and you don't know who's going to get to it. And you can tell yourself that you're taking the right steps to make sure that no one will. But on some level, the truth is that control is an illusion. (laughs) Control. That's very dire <laughs> but but true <laughs> but um that having been said i hope that no one listening to this tries to teach me how true this is because i would really hate to have my gmail hacked i feel like uh you know mr robot has been such a big target or like could have been such a big target and the fact that they haven't been hacked yet uh suggests that either you have protection or there's like an ongoing uh discussion in the hacker community deciding like okay these guys are cool like let's leave them alone until they you know screw up some factual thing about hacking (laughs) until you guys go like super uh you know um sensationalist not that you will i'm saying they're like holding it over your head (laughs) 
Yeah, or like until they hear what what I'm saying now on this. No, 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 not that. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) We have no hackers that read or listen to motherboard anyway, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Have you been contacted by any hackers? Since working on the show, has the show been in touch with hackers? And are there are there groups that you know that have found inspiration in what what's going on on the on the show? We've, I mean, in general, we've had a really positive response from people who from people like who are hackers or like work in in the world that Elliot is in. So specifically, I think like we've been we're in touch with a lot of people as consultants, like official consultants on the show, and um, but Core handles most of that, so I can't really be specific about that. Yeah, and Core has talked to Motherboard for stories before, and we're hoping to have him on a podcast eventually. But he's very nice and super knowledgeable, and like seems to really be the backbone of the like nitty gritty realism of the show, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, Core just is the person who knows the. Li- the details enough to know whether what we're talking about is like physically possible because he will go home and try to do it and then um and then report back and if if there's something that really doesn't work then we'll have to fix it i have one more question um that's more like a big picture question i guess um i've i watched the first part of the new season recently and i was like i kept some for some reason i i thought about uh, prison break the you know the old tv show about there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and zepbound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, this guy's trying to break out of prison. And I was wondering, like, how do you guys plan to not fall into the same traps that Prison Break fell? Which I felt like, you know, that show I felt... Uh, was predicated on being just one season and that's it. And I, I, don't, I don't think that Mr. Robot was that way. But, you know, like we've seen a, the big hack happened, actually happened. We had the big reveal of, you know, Mr. Robot being um, just an illusion. So how do you guys plan to like keep the tension going and keep like reveals coming without, you know, jumping the shark, as they would say? I think I wasn't on the first season so for me I started on the second season but I think everybody including the people who were on in the first season sort of felt like the reveal about Mr. Robot and Elliot was something that was a hurdle that we had to overcome and then like that had to happen and then the show could really get going so it's actually like now the show the viewers know what the relationship is between Elliot and Mr. Robot. And so now it's kind of a whole different show. And there's like all this more potential. So I think that, I mean, I didn't watch Prison Break, so I can't be specific about Mm -hmm. comparisons, but I, I think our show is about what it's like to be this man, Elliot. Hmm. And, and everything around him and the world in general. But I think that now the viewer just has a deeper understanding of what his intersubjectivity is like because we understand that that this person who's physical in his life isn't real and he knows it's not real and that kind of relates to in a way what i was talking about before about the fact that we all know that there are these worlds lurking around on the internet at any given time and that what we see and perceive of our own existence is just a part of the way that other people are interacting with us because they're looking at our pictures or they're reading what we've written or, or whatever. And that Elliot, for Elliot, all of that is really literal because he has this literal delusion. But I feel like we can just, I feel like we can relate to him in a different way knowing that, knowing the secret. So I, I don't think, I'm confident that a lot, that things are going to get even more interesting now. I guess I'm wondering, based on um, 
you know, the fact that this is a show about a guy and it's called Mr. Robot. Um, there are also, uh, I guess the question I have is, how do you think about the, the presence of female characters in this environment? I think there's one of the remarkable things about this is how, how many strong female characters there are in the show, despite mm-hmm. the, uh, the masculinity of the title um, and the masculinity of that world in general. I wonder if that's something that's um, that's discussed within the within the writers' room, and, and how this show sort of comes to gender in, in a different way, from your perspective. Well, Sam is really committed to showing the world as it is in terms of like diversity of all kinds, and I think that one of the things that impressed me most about him when I first started working for him was the fact that he was always the one asking, like, are our female characters having enough to do? Like, you know, it wasn't... He was the one who was coming into the room being like, wait a minute, I realized this isn't an active story for this woman. Why didn't anyone tell me? (laughs) You know, and and so he's he's really... He really deserves the credit for that. And I think that... But, I mean, you know, basically the world has a lot of women in it (laughs) and a lot of those women have rich lives. And I think that the show in its attempt to be a good show that shows the world in its entirety includes that. But I think that in, in season two, we'll see that there, there's an FBI agent who's been introduced who um, is played by Grace Gummer. And it's like, you know, that the character of the cop who's following the story could easily, I mean, I think like, you know, typically speaking, you would think that's a man, especially when the lead person who, you know, when the like lead person being pursued is a guy, there's kind of a sense usually of like antagonists. And I think that, and Sam just like thought outside the box. Sure. No, there's been there seems like a very special attention to diversity on this show. Um, is that something that's reflected in the writers' room? Does the does, what does the writers' room feel like in terms of um, the the group of people that have come together? Is it is it a very mixed group in terms of background and experience? Um, and and also, I guess what makes what makes that room special compared to other ones that you that you've been involved with? Um, yeah, it. It is a really diverse group in terms of background and experience. And I think that um, one of the things that it makes it special is that there's a really... I, I haven't been in that many writers' rooms, and this is the first one I've been in as a writer, but I have seen a few because I've worked as an assistant in television shows. And I think the Mr. Robot writers' room, like, anybody is free to, to talk from, like, PA writer's assistant, all of the writers, like, at any time. Um, and and so there's, like, a really open exchange of the best idea wins. And there's a really open exchange about being able to tell each other that our ideas are shit. <laughs> so it's, like, there's... Which I love. It's because it's, like, any writer's room, there's going to be conflict and confrontation in some fashion. And in Mr. Robot, it's really, like, explicitly explicit debate and confrontation and if you bring an idea forward you have to be willing to defend it because there will be people who disagree and I think um that's one of the I think that's a I think a lot of writers rooms are like that but Mr. Robot is especially like that and I think that the 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 fact that everybody has a voice is unique it's like the open source decentralized approach. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like there's that's exactly right. How do you balance like the different approaches to the different types of the different genres that you're working in? Well, I basically try to do one thing at a time. Definitely when I was working on Mr. Robot, I wasn't doing anything else. And I think that I generally in terms of my own writing, I'll do a lot of the work when I'm alone but not writing. 
when I'm just walking around and I think things through and then I get to a table and I write it down. And working on Mr. Robot is the opposite process from that because all the writing that you're doing is out loud and with other people. I mean, it's like when you actually get to the writing process, you're alone in a computer, but that's so far down the road from when you first start coming up with the ideas. And so it's like almost kind of inside out from my usual writing process. And so it's it's like really, really challenging and interesting because it feels almost like putting a case together, like it almost, almost like like as much as it feels like traditional writing to me it's like everybody we have to figure out how to get out of get out of this safe before it explodes altogether. you know <laughs> so it's like <laughs> creativity and problem solving hand in hand and all in a like collaborative way and and it's like sometimes when you're writing alone and when you're writing alone that's when you can and this is true like on the episode I worked on on Mr. Robot and also just in my, the rest of my writing, that's when you focus on a line being a great line or a shot that you think will be a great shot. But when we're all together, it's just, it's the creative problem solving of like, what will the show be? Outlining it. So I feel like uh, the first episode here was a lot of buildup. Um, and when they air, we're unfortunately recording this before the second episode is aired but when they air on wednesday uh they're going to be played back to back and they kind of give us like a to be continued type situation so you've likely seen uh both the first and second episode um we don't have time with with our editing schedule to um to do that unfortunately so this is just going to cover the first episode and then next week we're probably going to do episodes two and three or maybe we'll do it uh, later this week. But watch this space for uh, for the second episode analysis. But uh, yeah, so in the first episode there are two hacks. Um, there is the Internet of Things hack that we see on... I don't really know who this is. Is it Angela? Who Who is it? It's not Angela. No, the, you mean the person that gets hacked? Who's the person that gets hacked? I didn't know. She's uh, I don't remember her name, but she's uh, she's a new character and she's uh, I think the main She's the FBI agent. No, I no. think she's a uh, no, she's the she's Evil Corp's um oh, E-Corp's um, lawyer, lawyer yes. or main. Okay, sorry. Uh, she's the assassin. Lawyer. Because all of uh, all of her cases the people yeah. end up dead. Yeah, yes. It's like it seems like she's going to be a big new character and but what we see in the episode is that basically she has this really fancy, amazing apartment uh, somewhere in Manhattan, I think West Village or something. And it's all completely, it's a smart home. So you have to use a tablet to turn on your lights. You have to use a tablet to turn on the TV. Everything is connected to the internet, the shower, uh, the heating and the AC. You know, it's basically like, um, it's the dream. It's like the internet of things, nightmare slash dream. And... Um, at the beginning of this, this, the episode, we see that nothing is working. And I think when, when I watched it at the beginning, I was like, okay, is this, is nothing working because of the big hack? And, you know, like all, all, all systems in the world are fucked up because of that. Or is it because someone is screwing with her? And then it turns out that, yes, it's F Society that was actually screwing with her uh, in an effort to like drive her out of the apartment so that they could just use it as their basically headquarters. Yeah, which is pretty audacious to just use yeah, uh, e-corps. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's a bold move. <laughs> it's a bold move. It makes sense, I guess, with the you know characters and you know the group's uh, intent. You know, they're like anonymous. They do it for the lulz in a way. I mean, you know, there's a lot of ideals behind it, but they also you know if they can screw with the people directly and they could, they will do it. Yeah. So um, they basically make her lights blink on and off. They make the music like suddenly turn on really loud and off. Um, you know, none of her appliances are working. She's calling, you know, someone. The Weimar Republic, because the, the, the Yeah, that's right. Inflation. Inflation. 
calling like um, either her landlord or super or whoever installed all these smart home devices. And she's like, I bought the smart home package. Like, why can't you guys fix this? Um, and yeah, they they don't know when they'll be able to fix it. And she has to leave. Um, you've written a lot about the security of the Internet of Things. How secure is the average person's smart home? I mean, I think it's as secure as long as nobody really like targets you. And the show doesn't really show us how they got into her smart home system. We can presume that maybe they hacked um, her password and got into the, that that way, or maybe they hacked the, the systems. Uh, there, there's you know there, there there could be like dozens of explanations, but but you know in the real world we've seen stuff like this um, happen, or at least like in theory this can happen anywhere. Um, you know the systems are not very secure and. And and most of the time, it's like the big issue is that there isn't really a fail safe or like a, you know, plan B if it doesn't work. Like I, I've seen many reports of, you know, this is not even like that malicious, but it's just when your Wi-Fi is down, then your smart thermostat doesn't work. Right. So it's like, you know, and you have no way to like manually override it. So it seems like a lot of these systems are still not mature enough. Right. This has become such a meme that there's a very popular Twitter account called Internet of Shit. That is just people complaining about, you know, hey, my light bulb firmware didn't update, so now I can't turn on my light. Or, you know, my smart fridge uh, isn't connected to the Wi-Fi, so now my eggs are bad. Things like that. Um, And, yeah, we have seen that a lot of the Internet of Things security relies on security by obscurity. And it's just, you know, they, they aren't secure, but it's like, oh, you know, I'm just a normal person. Why would anyone bother to try to hack my smart fridge? Um, and I guess what we're seeing here is that eCorp's lawyer is not just a normal person. And, um, you know, the her devices are not secure. Who, who knows if her password is secure? And, uh, yeah, she's kind of, she's really screwed here. She doesn't have any recourse except to leave. Yeah, she basically can't, and and uh, we haven't seen anything like that, like at this scale in the real world. But there was the closest example was uh, in Germany. There's this guy who has a complete, like, a full-on smart home, and he did it on purpose, mostly because he wanted to like test how it worked and see if there were some issues. And at some point, he had a, his light bulb basically was uh, designed to send out a notification wherever it broke. And one of the light bulbs in in his house broke and started sending notifications, but there was like a bug in the system that wouldn't like, that would receive the notification, but not like send it out to the user, to the the owner. And so the light bulb would keep sending out this notification until someone noticed, and it basically crashed the whole house because the notification was not being acted on. So the whole system, like the all, all the electricity, internet, everything, like stopped working because of this one light bulb that was not being replaced. That reminds me of like Christmas lights, where like if one of them is out, like all of them go out. Yeah, I mean, not it's, quite the same thing. But. It's just a great example of how like these systems like sound so great on in paper, but then like there are still so many little things that don't work and screw them up. Yeah. Do you have any uh, smart devices? No, I don't because I don't want to deal with them. Because mostly, it's not just. I don't really believe that if I own them, I will get hacked. It's mostly because all these little, like, stupid bugs, like, you know, the Wi-Fi goes down, I can't control my thermostat. It sounds like just such a big pain in the ass. You know, like, I I still don't see the advantage of having a smart device. Yeah, I could see it if you owned a home, but we both rent. Uh, And if you own, like, a home in the suburbs, like, maybe it'd be nice to have a smart thermostat. Maybe it'd be nice to have like keyless entry where you can, you know, let people in with your, uh, with your phone. That sounds like that, a nightmare. It though. is. It sounds like a security nightmare. But these these things do seem. Uh, I can see where the utility would be. Um, I have two smart light bulbs. I have actually a smart outlet and then a smart uh, light bulb itself. Um, and I have a string light like plugged into the smart outlet. And for the first, like, month after I got it, I used it all the time, and it was fun. And now, just like a normal person, I just walk up to the lamp and, like, turn, you know, turn the knob and turn it on. Because it requires me to, like, have my phone, and then it works via Wi-Fi. So I don't have to necessarily be connected to – I have to be connected to Wi-Fi in my house for it to to be on there. But uh, 
it has to like basically connect to to the light before I turn it off or on. So I have to wait like maybe 10 seconds while it just kind of like spins like waiting. Um, and then I can hit a button and turn it off and on. And I'm like, this is not worth the three seconds yeah. like that it takes me to walk up to, to the light bulb itself. Um, it does have a nice dimming function, which is cool. But I don't know. I just I thought it'd be fun to try. It was only like a $15 smart light bulb. So, yeah, not the best. Anyways, uh, we see one other hack um, in this uh, episode, and it's kind of the cliffhanger that uh, episode one leaves us on. Um, and I think they say like to be continued or intermission rather. So um, if you watched it on Wednesday night, you probably have seen what happens. But we don't know yet. Uh, and what we see is a crypto locker attack against a ransomware attack rather against um, E Corp, right? Yeah, it's uh, F Society after taking control of uh, the lawyer's house, um, essentially launches a classic ransomware attack, which means infecting uh, computers and locking all the files, asking for a ransom. So essentially, if you're the victim, you can't access any of your files. You only see a screen that says you have X amount of time until we destroy all the files. Please pay us and we'll return you the files. And in in this case, F Society is asking for what they call a daily allowance of $5.9 million, which is kind of an expensive allowance. What are the demands again? $5.9 million. $5.9 million to be delivered to Battery Park City, 9 p.m. tonight. No police. If we want to pay the ransom, the FBI will not sanction it. We cannot negotiate with these people. Our techs are looking into it. We'll find a way to decrypt it and get the system... How long? Five days. Tops. Five days for our banking system. $5.9 million every day. Uh, I think it's just a one-time payment. But, um, you know, part of it is also that they 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 want like they want this money being delivered physically and in person by one of the chief uh one of the chief officers of ecorp so and and that's where the episode ends so we don't know exactly what's the end game the money might not even be the real end game maybe they want to like actually kidnap one of these guys or i don't know kill them maybe i mean yeah 4.7 million is a pittance like to ecorp and they lock down all of their files, you know, like that's obviously worth billions and billions of dollars, presumably. Um, yeah, in fact, the, the lawyer has a line uh, saying like, oh, we can find this under our mattresses, you know, let's just pay and forget about it. Where it because the other, the other, I think the, C, the CTO and another guy were like, oh, no, we don't, you know, we don't negotiate with these guys. They're terrorists. We don't want to pay. And she's like, why not just pay? It's, it's only 5.9 million. Right. So two interesting things about this, I thought where um, E-Corp, one of the E-Corp execs was talking about just putting some people on this to try to decrypt the files, said it would take a few days, um, but they were going to delete the encryption key in 14 hours. So um, that's, not, that's not how ransomware works. I'm sure that that's a very common response to ransomware when, when it happens. It's like, oh, we'll just get our IT guys on it, and there's not really a... There's not really a recourse except for to pay the money normally. So um, surely like when a hospital, this happens to hospitals or it happens to NASA, it's happened to all sorts of people. Um, I would bet that the first response from whoever is, you know, call up the IT guy and like surely they can get us out of this. But that's not really the case. Yeah, I mean, that's the genius of this whole ransomware business. You know, it's become a business and it's so popular for criminals because it's easy. You know, I infect you. And and the way it works is that it's much better for the victim to pay and get his file, their files back than go through, you know, trying to decrypt them or unlock them, which sometimes it's impossible. Like some security companies have found ways to unlock the files, but this has taken like months of research 
And, you know, it's not something that you can do on a case-by-case basis. And sometimes it's never happened. Like if the encryption is done well, then there's really nothing you can do unless you have the key and the criminals have the key. So how have they found ways to decrypt the files? Have they just like brute forced it? Yeah, I think they just brute forced it or somehow like, you know, infiltrated the... I imagine they want another way. Another way you can do it is just infiltrate the criminals and find the key somehow. But... But yeah, there's really no other way. And and also, like, time is working against you. You don't have a lot of time. Usually they give you a few days uh, to pay. And, and, and also, and the genius is that, like, they don't really ask for that much money, you know. I mean, in this case, in the Mr. Robert episode, they ask for a lot of money, but that's because it's a targeted attack against an evil and large corporation. But usually when they infect random people, they just ask for $300, $400, which is, you know, it's it's good money if you infect, like, you know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people, but for one person, it's like, okay, well, you know, I have all my children's pictures in my computer. I have my work, my work documents. I think it's, I might as well just pay and get them back. And usually victims get them back. You know, there's a few cases of like the files never returning, but usually they do get unlocked. And Yeah. Interestingly, there's like this big um, sort of industrial complex surrounding uh, ransomware. And, you know, the, the, criminals who do this are quite honest usually um, because it's in their best interest to actually return the files because if people hear oh yeah I paid and they return the files then obviously more people are likely to pay and there's been like instances of these um, these criminal rings having like tech support guys who are like oh yeah I'll, I'll help you figure out how to use Bitcoin or buy Bitcoin because for a lot of people this is their first introduction to Bitcoin because they're many of the people who get infected by ransomware are sort of like novice computer users and they get this, you know, scary, scary thing on their computer. And, you know, this says pay $500 to Bitcoin to this like random Russian email address and a random Russian like Bitcoin wallet. And they don't know what to do. So, you know, they usually have step-by-step guides, like here's a Bitcoin ATM near your house and stuff like that, which I think is hilarious and scary and, you know, yeah, it's innovative, pretty, yeah. creative. It's creative and it's professionalized. Like, I mean, nobody knows exactly how these gangs work, but the the main the common belief is that the main operators are not the ones that are doing the customer support, and the the guys that are doing the customer support actually don't even know the main operators. Uh, so there's like layers of separation between you know the lower end employees and the executives, if you will, in, on the operation. And they and as you said, they're like it's. Every good and popular ransomware operation these days has customer support, and like, and sometimes it's in different languages, you know, Italian, Spanish, English, even more obscure languages, and they they are pretty responsive. Like, they you send them a message saying, "Hey, I got infected. I don't know what to do," and they like walk you through it. They're, they have a chat system on, and it's like it's kind of amazing, you know, like it's better than some tech companies' tech support. <laughs> um, so it, it's definitely like. You know, it's a big problem. Uh, the FBI has been has been criticized for sometimes uh, hinting or even like straight out advising uh, to pay the ransom. Um, you know, obviously the argument against it is if you if you if people pay, then we'll keep this the wheel going. And it's really it's a really hard problem to solve, and nobody really knows how to solve it. Right. So uh, in this episode, the hacker who does this goes by the jester. And as you wrote on a story in Motherboard earlier this week, the jester is a real person. Um, tell us about the jester. Yeah, this was it was funny when I when I saw this, and I wasn't obviously I wasn't the only one to catch this. But when F Society infects um, E Corp uh, with the ransomware, in the ransom message they include uh, sort of like a joke a joker and they sign it as the just jester actual which is an actual yeah it's an actual real world hacker who goes by that name nobody knows his real identity he's been around for at least 6 years since 2010 and he's mostly well mostly known for his patriot patriotic views so as opposed to like groups like anonymous or lulzac He's always taken uh, a pro-US and pro-American position, especially when WikiLeaks was really big and Anonymous was like um, supporting WikiLeaks with their famous attacks on PayPal and other companies. The Jester was trying to disrupt them. 
um, trying to dox them, which means exposing their real identities. Uh, he's also famous for uh, targeting supposedly jihadist websites. I think in some cases he's taken down websites that were not jihadist. But, um, you know, he's, that's that's his persona, his online persona. He claims to be a veteran um, and he's controversial because he's very good at getting pop, like, media attention. Uh, he has a Twitter account of, with 70,000 followers. Uh, but other hackers, especially people that, you know, uh, had to fight him or spat with him, uh, believe that he's kind of a wannabe uh, hacker. In fact, a, a former Lulzek hacker, when I asked him about the jester, said uh, he's the Mr. Bean of wannabe cyber insurgents. That's really funny. <laughs> and, you know, like he's, this guy obviously doesn't like him and he's had some, he, they must have some history. But, you know, when... I found out about the fact that the jester was on this episode because someone randomly, another hacker randomly pinged me on chat and said, did you see this? Oh my God, it's like, this will not help his ego at all. Um, so he's definitely not a very popular guy among other hackers. And it's interesting that they decided to use his name because he's not known for any criminal activity like ransomware. And also he's kind of like the first, as far as we know, he's really the first uh, real world hacker individual that gets name dropped in the show. Right. Last season, they called out Lizard Squad, right? Yeah, they called out Lizard Squad, but it was like a, even a more subtle way. Um, there was a Lizard Squad, uh, like, a, you know, logo on a pinball machine. Um, but, you know, and, you know, Lizard Squad is just a group. They didn't call out any of his, their members. Yeah, Lizard Squad is known for hacking, like, the PlayStation Network. Right? Yeah, they're, like, mostly known for, yeah, hacking PlayStation Network, Xbox they did Network. DDoS attacks, yeah. Yeah, DDoS attacks. Uh, they're also no. A lot of people dismiss them as, uh, you know, not very sophisticated hackers, but that's what they do. They try to, like, get attention and media, especially media attention, by taking down big targets. Okay, so um, surely there'll be many more hacks to talk about throughout the rest of this season. Um this first episode was pretty light on the hacking, honestly. Um, a lot of like world building and uh, setup for what's surely a very interesting second episode. Um, and yeah, we, we will be talking about it on the next episode. Um, this episode is running on Radio Motherboard, but we're also setting up a separate uh, iTunes feed. So if you subscribe, please uh, consider subscribing to hashtag F Society. Um, and yeah, we will be back. Uh, we're very excited for this season and we're going to have hopefully more interviews with uh, people who are involved in the show uh, throughout. So yeah, thanks. Thank you, Lorenzo. And we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.